on Stephen Hawking and the great the grand designer. And your speaker is Peter S. Williams, who is the resident speaker, the resident um, philosopher of Maharaj Trust, which is a Christian educational charity. And he has brought a conference all over the country for A-level students, and we're very lucky to have him here tonight. He's the author of eight books, including The Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. And um, Mr. Pollard has a very funny story about he'd get him to shut his eyes, and Mr. Pollard would select any book off the shelf and start reading from it, and he would just be able to guess immediately what book it was. So, yeah, quite good, like, kind of thing. Um, and there'll be questions at the end, so please have a think uh, when it's going on. And yeah, um, enjoy. Right, thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed just sitting in on some of uh, Mr. Pollard's lessons uh, today and seeing uh, him uh, teaching people who were you know, as uh, young as he was when I started teaching him. And it makes me feel uh, very uh, old, I think is the word. Um, <laughs> Stephen Hawking and his uh, recent book, co-authored with uh, physicist Leonard Mlodnol, but I will just shorten it to Stephen Hawking's book as the kind of famous lead author of it. Um, the Grand Design um, came out fairly recently and caused uh, big waves in the media. I think they've got very good publicists uh, for their work. And um, it's still part of the sort of ongoing public conversation uh, about God. I mean, the, uh, the recent edition of New Statesman has a cover article about the God Wars uh, written by an agnostic uh, called Brian Appleyard. And in this article, he notes um, that he went to interview Stephen Hawking just before the publication of uh, a previous book of his, a very famous book of his, called A Brief History of Time. And uh, Appleyard writes, he had become... It was his wife who told me, his then wife who told me this, vehemently anti-religious. And in my presence, he was contemptuously anti-philosophical. Vehemently anti-religious, and then he says, in my presence, contemptuously anti, not anti-religious, but anti-philosophical. Um, and that really is... Uh, something that as a, a philosopher uh, who's also religious, of course I'm going to disagree with him about the religious thing, but I'm also sort of taking up cudgels, as it were, on behalf of philosophy as a discipline. Um, so there's sort of two uh, discussions uh, going on at the same time here this evening. Uh, this is what an American uh, philosopher, J.P. Moreland, uh, says about Hawking's recent contribution to the public debate about God. He says, in their recent book, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnow claim that the laws of nature are consistent with the universe popping into existence from nothing. And in fact, they affirm that this is exactly what happened. The fact that many people have been influenced by the claims of Hawking and Mlodnow is sad to me. Uh, in previous times, when average people knew more philosophy, these claims would simply be laughable because they're philosophical assertions being made by scientists who have little or no philosophical training. 
Thus, however brilliant they are in their own field, and clearly as uh, someone who's made uh, world-leading contributions to the field of cosmology and uh, black holes and so on, Stephen Hawking uh, is no intellectual dunce. But he says, however brilliant are, they are in their own field, Hawking will know are laypersons when it comes to the relevant issues at hand. But we live in a scientistic culture. When a scientist speaks, he's taken to be an authority, irrespective of what the topic is. And indeed, there are certain people who have this view called scientism, that really science is the, the only way to have knowledge or have reliable knowledge about anything at all. And that philosophy, therefore, is a sort of moribund, dead discipline. And indeed, that's the, the sort of approach, this vehemently anti-philosophical approach that uh, Hawking has, that Brian Appleyard's been writing about recently. So Hawking begins with asking what's obviously one of the central philosophical questions about existence. Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? The traditional answer to that question, of course, the majority answer to that question is yes. Um, In the beginning, God created, says Genesis 1.1. There was a beginning. The beginning of the universe was created by God. And then Hawking comes along and publishes his book and has a very good publicist. And uh, they get the front page of the Times. Hawking, God did not create universe. See inside for the magazine for a long article um, publicising his book. So I'm going to examine four kind of related issues here as we go through. A little bit more about Hawking and philosophy before I then get into um, looking at the Big Bang and the existence of God, uh, the first cause argument, which is actually a slightly different argument than arguments around the Big Bang, and two versions, one very quickly and one in a bit more depth, of what's called the fine-tuning argument, a version of the uh, design argument for God. So that's where we're going, and let's get launched with Hawking and philosophy. Because Stephen Hawking and his co-author have a very radical philosophy of science. They say traditionally, these questions that they started with, of, you know, why, why is anything here? Did it need a creator? These are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So they're making a play for the the flag of truth discovery here. Whereas Oxford philosopher of science John Lennox responds, Hawking's statement about philosophy, that it's dead, is itself a philosophical statement. It is manifestly not a statement of science. It is a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It's a classic example of logical incoherence. 
So, as you might expect, um, as a philosopher, you think someone who says, you don't need to pay attention to philosophy because it's a dead subject, science is the way to go, it's the only way to know anything, um, you might expect them to rather easily make elementary philosophical mistakes, such as issuing self-contradictory statements about science being the only way to know anything. As Professor George Ellis, who is the president of the International Society for Science and Religion, says, philosophy is not dead. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical. Science can't answer that question about itself. And there are all sorts of other examples of that ilk that we could add here. But I won't. So, uh, Professor William Lane Craig says the professional philosopher will regard uh, Hawking and co-author's verdict as not merely amazingly condescending, because he's basically saying, all those philosophers of science in my university, they, they just haven't kept up with the physics. And they just haven't kept up, dear boy, you know. Uh, condescending, but also outrageously naive, despite their claim to speak as scientific torchbearers of knowledge, what Hawking and Mladenow are engaged in is philosophy. The most important conclusions in their book are philosophical, not scientific. And he argues that um, they're just trying to sort of wrap themselves in the cloak of science uh, to distract attention from the fact that really they're doing philosophy as non-experts. And actually that leads them to do that philosophy very badly. And they also have a very strange philosophy philosophy of science, as I said earlier. They say this in their book. According to our philosophy of science, it's pointless to ask whether a model, a scientific model, is real, only whether it agrees with observation. If there are two models that both agree with observation, one cannot say that one is more real than the other, Uh, One possible model, talking about the origin of the universe now, one possible model is favoured by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is literally true. So, young earth, six-day creationists, that kind of model of the origin of the universe. One can also have a different model in which time continues back 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang. (laughs) The Big Bang theory is more useful than the first, still... Neither model, neither young earth creationism nor the Big Bang theory, get this, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. (coughs) Science is all about saving the appearances, as the medieval phrase go. Getting a, a useful theory that lets you do stuff, but asking the question, does this theory really represent reality? So this really telling it how, how it is, is for Stephen Hawking a non-question. So let's look at the Big Bang. And here I'm going to assume that Big Bang theory really does give us an insight into reality. Rather than just being a model that you can, you know, you pays your money, you takes your choice. And let's put this Big Bang theory as a first premise in an argument uh, this is a little video showing the, the, uh, the COBE satellite that was put up in the 1980s and that measured the, the microwave background radiation of the universe. Uh, red is hot, blue is cold, and we're taking a series of pictures 
over time, becoming towards the present. And you see, as we get closer and closer to the present, you've got less red, less heat, more blue, more cold. As the universe has been expanding over time, the average temperature gets evened out. Each individual region of the universe gets cooler as thermodynamic equilibrium uh, spreads out into more and more space. And if you then trace that backwards, as it were, over time, everything is getting smaller and smaller and denser and denser and hotter and hotter, therefore, until you get back to the, the Big Bang fireball, as they say. This is one of the key bits of evidence that went into supporting the Big Bang theory, which was quite a chain, revolutionary change in scientific thinking uh, in the midst of the last century from the uh, eternally existing universe that people from Aristotle onwards had uh, often believed in. Recently, they had a, a 70th birthday conference in honour of Stephen Hawking. Unfortunately, he was too ill to attend his own birthday celebration conference, and he sent a video message in, and various well-known cosmologists gave papers on themes to do with Hawking's work. And at that conference, just after Christmas, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin said this, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. It's not just that he's saying on the balance of the evidence it had a beginning. He's saying all the evidence we have points to the universe having a beginning. And the New Scientist uh, magazine that came out at the time, this New Scientist from 14th of January 2012, had an editorial that said this. The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. But many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodge the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a big bang. Such as saying, okay, there was a big bang, but that was only one in a series of big bangs, going backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards. But recent research has shot them, these alternative theories, full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? Well, here's a, another premise. Every physical event has a cause, stands in a relationship to something outside of it that causally conditions that physical event. Philosopher Dallas Willard puts it this way, relative to our experience of reality, the probability that there could be a physical event that has no causal relationship to anything outside of itself is pretty much zero. Now, if you think that both premise one and premise two are more plausibly true than the denial of 
those premises, it logically follows from those two statements that therefore the first physical event had a cause. There was a first physical event because they go back in time and there was a physical event before which there was no previous physical event because there was a beginning. Every physical event has a cause. Therefore, the first physical event had a cause. And once you've got that far, then it's basically an easy run home because we just carry forward that conclusion. First physical event had a cause. And say this, look, the cause of the first physical event cannot itself have been a physical event. What caused the first physical event? Oh, the previous physical event. What? That makes no sense, does it? But from these two premises, it it logically follows that therefore the first physical event must have had a... Well, if you've ruled out a physical cause, what have you got left? A cause that's not physical. And the first physical event had a non-physical cause. Let's carry that forward. If you add this premise, the non-physical cause of the first physical event must be a personal cause. And we might go in a little bit more to the details of why you think that that's the best explanation. It's basically to do with what sort of other explanatory option is there for a non-physical cause of something other than some sort of immaterial, unembodied person couldn't be, even if you thought with certain philosophers that say numbers really exist, so-called abstract objects like sets or numbers are non-physical things that really exist, but abstract entities don't have causal relationships by definition, basically. So by sort of process of elimination, you would argue for premise two, from which you get out this. Therefore, the first physical event had a non-physical personal cause. She's beginning to sound suspiciously like God, or at least part of what people who believe in God mean by God. There's the whole train of the, the argument going through. It's certainly logically valid, I think. The question will be whether you think that the key premises as you work through are more plausible than their denial or not. So that's the kind of argument that I would mount for believing in a creator from the truth of Big Bang Theory. Well, Stephen Hawking objects, of course. He says, look, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe, but if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of, well, who made God? Who created God? John Lennox again says, this is very interesting, what is... You ever heard this phrase? What is source for the goose is source for the gander. You've got to apply principles even-handedly, in other words. If the answer to what created the universe is, as Hawking says, the law of gravity, by Hawking's own argument here, the question has merely been deflected to who created the law of gravity. And this is a question that he doesn't answer. You know, two can play at that game. Hawking is giving an argument that serves only to reveal the inadequacy of his concept of God, argues Lennox. To ask the question, who created God, is logically to presuppose that God must be a created entity. 
that's just begging the question against the idea that God could be an uncreated entity, which is what most people mean by God, the first uncreated cause. In other words, Hawking's objection begs the question against the possibility of an unmade God. I mean, how many people believe in a created God? Uh, However, the Big Bang argument doesn't make or depend upon any claims about God being either caused or uncaused. That just wasn't part of the argument. And in that context, Hawking's who made God question is just simply irrelevant as an objection to the argument because the argument didn't depend upon answering that question in any way. As William Lane Craig puts it, in order for an explanation of something to be the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Such a requirement would generate an infinite regress of explanations, which would basically make it impossible to ever explain anything. Because you'd always have to explain the explanation of the thing, and the explanation of the explanation of the thing, and the explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the thing, and you'd never have time to do it. So Hawking's objection to the cosmological argument here, this Kalam-type cosmological argument, as it's called, is actually an objection against science which is a bit ironic, I think. And also, Hawking's who made God question can be given a perfectly reasonable answer, given that A, from nothing, nothing comes, and we'll come back to this phrase, and B, that there can't be an infinite regress of causes, the causal buck, as it were, must stop somewhere. And theists have always thought of God as that somewhere. And the answer to the who made God question is really to say this is a malformed question. Nothing made God. God is the uncaused first cause. And the Kalam cosmological argument is is an argument for the existence of such a thing. That, That Big Bang or Kalam cosmological argument is slightly different from what you might call the first cause argument, which is more sort of purely philosophical, which is much shorter to put as well. You could put it like this. Premise one. Some things are caused by other things. Okay? Some things, at least one thing, is caused by something that outside of itself. Okay? Premise two. It is impossible for everything to be caused, to be a caused thing. Here's two justifications for that thought. First of all, there can't be an actually infinite regret or set of causes, I would argue. And secondly, given that from nothing, nothing comes, nothing can't do anything because it isn't anything, and there's literally nothing, by definition, outside of everything, what would there be outside of everything to do the causing if you're saying you're claiming that everything is of, of a caused nature? So some things are caused by other things. It's impossible for everything to be caused, therefore something exists without a cause. And that's 
God. So we can bring in this as a sort of subsidiary way of, of answering that who made God question, which is anyway an irrelevant objection to the Big Bang argument. In this view, says Hawking, it is accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator, i.e. the the creator. And this entity is called God. This is known as the first cause argument for God, which Hawking actually confuses with the Big Bang argument. Uh, We claim, however, that it's possible to answer these questions of existence purely within the realm of science without invoking any divine beings. Peter Atkins, who's a fellow atheist in his recent book on being, kind of says, yes, but... He says this. The task before science, or at least a science that wants to sort of wear its atheistic colours on its sleeve, will be to show how something can come from nothing without intervention. The unfolding of absolutely nothing into something is a problem of the profoundest difficulty and currently far beyond the reach of science. You can see the sort of let-out clause that he's allowing himself there, the idea that, well, currently it's far beyond the reach of science, but, but one day science will get there, just give us time, you know. But I think in principle, it's not just a, a lack of 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 trying or time it's in principle here science cannot explain why anything exists at a fundamental level as Craig says physics is inherently applicable to being it is impossible for there to be a physics of non-being you can't have a physics of nothingness and so science can't give you anything with which to explain how nothingness could produce somethingness, as it were. I said we come back to this. Uh, Parmenides of Elea in the 5th century BC, ancient Greek chap, said it's just an obvious metaphysical fact that from nothing, nothing comes. Uh, we could put it like this. You, you just can't get an effect without a cause. Aristotle, um, as an aside, Aristotle once famously defined uh, nothing as that which rocks think about. (laughs) Think about it. Now Hawking says, look, bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just appear out of nothing. This is looking promising. But then he says, but a whole universe can. Stars and black holes and things can't just appear out of nothing, but a whole universe can. Question, how will Hawking justify making an exception on behalf of the whole universe to the principle that from nothing, nothing comes? My answer, very badly. Here's the the take-home crunch point of the book, really. They say, because gravity shapes space and time, it allows space-time to be locally stable, but globally unstable. On the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy 
And so there's no restriction on the creation of the whole universe out of nothing. Now we need to grapple with this a little bit and perhaps give you an analogy that I think will help you clamp onto what they're really saying here. It's a bit like saying, look, because I have one bank account with £100 in it, and I've got another bank account that's £100 in debt, therefore I have no money and no bank accounts, the existence of which need explaining. (coughs) You can get bank accounts from nowhere as long as the positive monetary value and the negative monetary value of your bank accounts sums to zero. Which is, of course, another word for nothing, isn't it? So you can get something from nothing. It's just playing with words, isn't it? Peter Atkins disagrees with Hawking here, agrees with me. Uh, He says... Look, there are no laws in a universe that does not exist. Nothing has no properties and thus does not undergo quantum fluctuations, whereby because your overall summing of uh, forces uh, sums to zero, therefore you can talk about getting something from nothing, whereby nothing isn't really nothing, It's just the sum result of two things which are clearly things that you're talking about. Uh, Dr. Rowan Williams, with his marvellous shaggy beard, um, I think he has a very good pertinent point here. He says, look, physical laws like gravity or the laws of quantum mechanics or whatever are about the regular relations between actual realities. I cannot see how they explain the bare fact that there is any reality to be described by those laws at all. You're kind of putting the cart before the horse in trying to explain the reality in terms of the laws, as if the laws somehow kind of exist independently of the reality that they describe and and could, could explain it, and as if you can treat the laws as nothing if they did exist. Just makes no sense on any level, really, does it? Back to Lennox, who... Um, and he's, he's great gesture, isn't it, <laughs> this photo? Okay, Hawking says that the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says that the universe creates itself. Um, his notion that the uh, law of nature, like gravity, explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its own existence, on the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. Thus, the main conclusion of the book turns out not simply to be a self-contradiction, which is bad enough. I mean, in philosophy, saying something self-contradictory is just a knock-out blow. Um, You know, pack your bags, go home. Not just a self-contradiction, which would be a disaster enough, but a triple self-contradiction. Philosophers just might be tempted to comment, so this is what comes of giving up philosophy. (laughs) So I would say, so far so good, taken together, this big bang and first cause arguments, 
point to the existence of some sort of transcendent, non-physical, personal, uncaused, independent, first cause of the universe. And Hawking and his uh, scientific crusade have certainly done nothing to undermine those points. And then we come not just to the existence or the origin of the universe, but the fact that the universe has a certain characteristic nature, what's called the fine-tuning. Here's a little video that uh, gives us a nice little thought experiment. Suppose we had a, a giant machine that could create universes. Wow, wouldn't it be fun to play with? Uh, on this machine, we've got loads and loads of different dials. Uh, each dial represents one law of physics or constant of nature that we might give our prospective uh, universe. Well, let's set this machine up to represent the way our universe actually is. And then just take one of those laws and change the strength of that law just by a very, very small percentage, either stronger or weaker. And then we press the create a universe button. The surprising thing to the scientists, again, in sort of mid to late 20th century, when they started running the numbers on this sort of thought experiment, was that the product of such an experiment, if you could do it, uh, would be a dull, lifeless, unfruitful universe that couldn't have intelligent life in it. Well, probably couldn't have life in it. Well, probably couldn't even have carbon in it let alone organic chemistry. Well, they actually may not even exist for long enough to get matter coalescing out of the early heat energy of the universe before it collapsed in on itself again because the law of gravity is set the wrong way. Uh, and people have been really perplexed by this uh, observation ever, ever since. Hawking and Melodon talk quite a lot about it in their book. They say a change of as little as 0.5% in the strength of the strong nuclear force or 4% in the electric force would destroy either nearly all carbon or all oxygen in every star and hence make the possibility of life, as we know it, impossible. Change those rules of our universe just a bit and the conditions for our existence disappear. The laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, they say, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it, and indeed even life as we don't know it. As the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis says in his book, a very interesting book, uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, Why is the Universe Just Right for Life?, Uh, He says, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if, that it looks as if it were designed for life. Professor Fred Hoyle, who actually discovered one of these first uh, instances of so-called fine-tuning, was an atheist, and he kind of grumblingly complained, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. Well, Famous British philosopher Richard Swinburne would surely apply his famous principle of credulity, when to, when to trust observations, uh, to this. That we ought to believe that things are the way they seem to us to be until we've got sufficient reason to doubt that things are the way that they seem. And he says, if you didn't follow that principle, you'd never believe anything, because you'd be saying, I'm never going to believe anything until I've got a good enough reason to believe it. But I'm never going to believe your reason for believing it until I've got a good enough reason for believing your reason. And so on, and so on, and so on. 
Think of it like this. If it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, isn't it cute? Uh, it walks and swims like a duck and so on and so on. Then hmm, the burden of proof is surely on the person who wants to say, I know it looks like a duck, etc., 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 but it isn't really a duck. It's all a conspiracy. It's all a delusion. They at least bear the burden of proof here, which gives us a rather simple design argument. Premise one, principle of credulity. Premise two, the fine-tuning of the Big Bang looks like it was designed. Conclusion, therefore, in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence, an important clause, we should believe that the fine-tuning is designed. But let me say a little bit more at depth uh, as a last thing uh, on behalf of this kind of design argument uh, for those who might be thinking, ah, well, maybe we can get sufficient counter-evidence. Another way of putting the argument, this time from Bill Craig. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, it just had to be that way, chance, we're just lucky, or design. Premise two, it's not due to physical necessity or chance. If we can eliminate those alternatives, then we're only left conclusion with, therefore, it's due to design. Well, Hawking talks a lot about M-theory, which is a sort of umbrella term for lots of string theory stuff. He says it's got so many different solutions, it allows for so many different possible universes, indeed, perhaps 10 to the 500th power possible universes are consistent with the laws of M-theory. The original hope of physicists to produce a, a single theory of everything, uh, explaining the apparent laws of our universe as the unique possible consequence of a few simple assumptions, may have to be abandoned, he says. It appears that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. So it would seem that Stephen Hawking himself would agree with ruling out the physical necessity option here. So let's rule that out, leaving us with a choice between chance or design. There seems to be a vast landscape of possible universes, he says, However, universes in which life like us can exist are rare. If it were only slightly different, we couldn't exist. What are we to make of this, he asks. Is it evidence that the universe was, after all, designed? Of course, he doesn't think that. But let's try and argue him into it, as it were. Uh, there's a mathematician and philosopher called William Dembski that Craig's talking about here, who argues that in addition to talking about high improbability of an event when we want to try and reliably infer that it was designed, we need to talk about what's called specifications, conformity to an independently given pattern. I'll give an illustration or two of this for you. Uh, for example, Craig illustrates, he says, in a poker game, any particular deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. It's just one possible deal of cards out of all the possible deals of cards. Okay? So it's any deals improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals the cards, he gets all four aces, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. 
you know, the excuse you're playing cards in Dodge City, all the cowboys around the table. Every time you deal, you get the winning hand. They will pull their guns and accuse you of cheating. And you say to them, well, there's nothing to be surprised at. Any hand of card that I get is just as equally unlikely as all the others. Any deal of hands is one possible deal of hands out of all of the possible deals of hands. What are you complaining about? Those cowboys are going to fill you full of lead. (laughs) It's just not going to play. So Dempsey puts it like this, given an event or an object or a structure, to convince ourselves that it was designed, we need to show that it's improbably and suitably patterned. In other words, complexity and likelihood plus specification and independently given pattern equal design. It's a positive test for design. It's not a negative test, by the way, but it's a positive test for design. Suppose you're playing Scrabble, you take the Scrabble tiles, sight unseen out of the Scrabble bag, and you pull out this sequence of of tiles, long sequence of tiles. Well, it's complex, it's very unlikely. That's just one possible sequence of tiles of that length out of a huge possible number of sequences of that length. Very unlikely. But it's not specified. It's just gibberish. You can easily get away without having to invoke design to explain that occurrence. Suppose you pull out these letters. D, O, G. Oh, I've made a word. Well, this sequence of letters is specified, isn't it? It hits an independently known pattern. But it is not complex. It is not very unlikely that occasionally in playing Scrabble you pull out a word. But then suppose you're playing Scrabble and you pull out of the bag this sequence of letters. All things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, design, and some by chance, Plato. Laws, book 10. Then you think someone's pulled a trick on you, don't you? Because this is both complex and specified. And it's clearly the product of of art, as Plato says. Or look at Mount Rushmore, where the faces of four presidents are carved into the mountain in America. That's a very unlikely pattern. So is the back of the mountain, by the way. The back of the mountain... It's probably the only mountain in the world with exactly that weathering pattern on it. But clearly, the front of the mountain was designed, and the back of the mountain is the result of just natural forces and weathering and so on, because the front, not just complicated, it also hits for specifications. So I think that gives you a a hopeful, uh, intuitive grasp of this uh, sort of concept of a, a positive test for design from specified complexity. And Hawking writes, the problem is that he's trying to get around in this fine-tuning observation. The problem is, for our theoretical models of Big Bang, of the inflation of the universe to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. You see that he's basically saying that premise two 
the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity is true. The universe had to be set up in a very special and improbable way. So Hawking endorses that premise of this argument. But if premise one is true, if specified complexity really is a reliable indicator that something's designed, then this conclusion would follow that you should go with the design explanation rather than the simple chance explanation. So Hawking's real objection, when it comes down to it, to this fine-tuning argument, is basically this. He points out that if there were enough different universes, all with slightly different laws of physics, then the specified fine-tuning of the universe, which he admits exists, wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify making that design inference. Because he'd say, yeah, it's specified, but it's not really unlikely. Because there's a heck of a lot of different universes, there's a heck of a lot of rolls of the dice going on, so many that it's not actually improbable that one of those rolls, by chance, would hit this specification. Which, of course, means that he has to be assuming this premise is true. There are enough different universes for that to be true. To get to the conclusion, therefore, the fine-tuning of our universe does not justify a design inference via that argument. But I've got first two flashing away in red here. Because, do we know that that's true? Actually, even in principle, is it even possible for us to have evidence that that's true? If we could experimentally get hold of it, wouldn't it, by definition, be part of this universe, physically interacting with the physical stuff around us? It's a bit like saying this. Okay, you'd heard the old thing, maybe from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but predates it a lot. If a really, really big number of chimps existed, or monkeys, uh, then they could type Shakespeare's complete works by chance. Give enough chimpanzees, enough typewriters, and enough time, and they'll just blindly bang away at the keyboard, and most of it will be gibberish, but give them long enough, give them enough monkeys, throw enough typewriters at the problem, by chance they could produce a copy of the complete work of Shakespeare. But anyone faced with this let's call it the many chimps hypothesis, as an actual proposed explanation for a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare by someone who wants to avoid evoking the existence of an author. Now, I'm going to ask, is there actually any independent evidence for the existence of enough monkeys with enough typewriters and enough time to make this likely. And in the absence of that evidence, they're going to prefer the one author explanation over the many chimps hypothesis. Likewise, I think we should prefer the one creator explanation over the multiple universes hypothesis. And then, startlingly, page 181 of their book... Hawking says this, if M-theory is finite, and we don't need to go into the the maths behind this, but just follow this, if M-theory is finite, 
and this has yet to be proved, it will be a model of the universe that creates itself. Now, I might doubt that that implication actually really follows, but let's, let's grant him, for the sake of argument, that he's right about that. So what he's really saying is, A, I admit that M theory, which is the big thing in my book that I'm appealing to, to get, get away from invoking God to explain fine-tuning, has yet to be proved. I haven't met that standard of proof required by the fine-tuning argument, by the multiple chimps hypothesis kind of illustration. I, I admit that I haven't met that demand. And also, I think it, well, it never will be proved because it's a logically incoherent statement. If it really does have the implication that if M-theory is true, then it's a model of a universe that can create itself out of nothing, that's just a metaphysical absurdity. That couldn't be true. Out of nothing, nothing comes. If that really is the implication of this scientific theory, then that scientific theory is wrong. And thirdly, to bring back to their rather strange philosophy of science, on Hawking's own philosophy of science, it doesn't actually even make sense to claim that M-theory is true. On his own philosophy of science, all that he could claim was... Well, it's a theory that is consistent with all of our observations and that I like. You could have a different model that was consistent with the observations and the question, well, which model's true, isn't even really a genuine question. And yet he's trying to appeal to this unproven scientific theory to rebut arguments for God. And to do that, surely you need to assume that the theory is actually telling it like it is. It's true. And yet his own philosophy of science says that scientific theories aren't either true or false. So I think the fine-tuning argument, however you phrase it in that simple looks-like-a-duck way or a more complicated way, uh, really still stands. Uh, certainly, at least, in front of any objections from Hawking and Lodnow. So I suppose this is a bit more tabloidy than the Times would really go, but I've doctored the front cover here. Uh, Hawking wrong, God did create universe. Uh, some sub-bullet points. Hawking's theory, self-contradictory. Big Bang, needed, big banger. The buck stops with God. Just right universe, put up job. Or at least so I, I would argue. And I invite you to um, take issue with me if you want to. Thank you very much for paying sustained attention to that. Does anybody have any questions? No? Anyone? Yeah? Um, why can't there be an infinite amount of time? Okay. Why... I'm going to repeat the question for the, for the tape, because I'm going to podcast things, I should give you fair warning that I'm going to do that just in case you're you know, very reticent to have your uh, unlabeled voice um, broadcast over the internet. Why can't there be an infinite regress of time? Well, I think there are some very interesting philosophical mathematical arguments about the incoherence of the notion of, of actual infinities as, as opposed to what's called potential infinities, things where you can keep on adding without limit. 
that say, you know, we can always have more future, or you can always have a bigger number by adding one. That's a, a potential infinite, that's called. There's no limit to how big it can get. But in the other direction, saying there wasn't a beginning, it's not just to say, well, you can just keep adding. It's to say that there's a set that's actually infinite. And you can very easily show that you can draw self-contradictory results from the assumption that there's a set of things that's actually infinite. But, and maybe you want to ask me what those arguments are, but I'm not going to go into them right now because... You can, you can do a sidestep around the whole argument here because the Big Bang argument doesn't require the premise it's impossible for there to be an infinite regress of time. All it requires is the premise there was not an infinite regress of time. That it's just a scientific observation that indeed there was a beginning. Whether or not there could have not been a beginning... The scientific evidence seems to indicate very strongly that, as a matter of fact, there was a beginning. And then you have to deal with what the implications of that is. Um, so in terms of could there be an infinite regress of time, well, I think there are good arguments for thinking not, but actually the Big Bang argument doesn't even require you to make that claim. Um, that claim is more something in the other, in, in the first cause argument I was talking about, you can't have an infinite regress of of causes and so on, but that's not necessarily talking about causes that are ordered in time, even. They might be um, concurrent causes, what's called sustaining causes. Um, a quick illustration of that might be if I say, um, okay, what's causing the glass to move as I'm talking? Well, it's not that my arm moved first. And that made the cup move. The cup and the arm are moving at the same time. But clearly, the movement of the cup is being caused by the movement of my arm here. Um, so it's, it's talking about causes of things existing right now. Could there be an infinite sort of chain of, of, of things depending on other things, depending on other things, caused by other things, caused by other things? Here and right now, just this moment, as it were, without thinking about the sort of origin of the universe or whatever. Does that get to the nub yeah. of the issue you're expressing? Yeah, we don't actually know whether the universe had a beginning or not, because we can trace it back to, like, literally, like, billions of mm. like, even less, though. But we haven't actually got back to zero. No, that, that's quite right. And he's making the, the, the point that our theoretical models of the origin of the universe don't actually stretch all the way back to the beginning. It's a strong inference from, from the data, but the models doesn't actually describe the beginning um, consistently, I think particularly because we haven't got a reconciliation between quantum mechanics and general relativity sort of sorted out yet. But this is where the New, the new Scientist article was saying, you know, cosmologists have had various attempts to avoid talking about it um, a beginning of the universe, whilst still fitting with the Big Bang evidence, but recent research has shown that's all full of holes. And there are, there are papers, particularly by uh, Alexander Vlenkin, who I'm quoted from, with a couple of co-authors, a series of papers in which they argue that um, even if there was a previous universe uh, before this one and one before that, you, you can't have a, a, an infinite series of such universes. It's just in, in, uh, physically impossible. 
not in principle, you know, philosophically, self-contradictory, but physically, any universe that's on an average state of expansion must go back to a, a, a finite past, even if that finite past is down behind a long series of big bangs, of concurrent universes, each of which gave birth to another one, and, and so on. Um, and so whether or not our Big Bang was the origin and so on, um, the idea that you've got to deal with the fact that when you trace time back, as it were, you get to a, a finite backward limit to it. That seems to be the thing that everyone is, is now increasingly ad- admitting in the scientific field. That's where all, Franken says, all the evidence points to there being a beginning. Um, you know, science can be wrong, though. But <laughs> you know, it's been wrong before about things, for sure. So I've got to hand over back to Madam Chairman to you. Okay, that's fine. I, I, am, I am happy for people to ask me one-on-one afterwards, okay. particularly if you don't want to. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, um, as there's science at the moment and philosophy, mm. trying to So the explanation, the true explanation might be in a field other than scientific or philosophical, yeah. as it were. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing to explore, but I, I think the, the way I'd go about answering it, he says, thinking on his feet, would be to say that actually um, science and philosophy kind of do cover the waterfront by definition. Particularly if you sort of think of, of philosophy as, as the subject that deals with all of the ultimate questions that science can't. Science deals with investigating the nature and the workings of the, the physical world, the empirically um, get-attable, at least indirectly, empirically get-attable, as it were. Um, but, as some of the quotes I had early on say, there are, there are certain questions that just in principle science can't deal with, such as, uh, why do science? Or is it, is it right to do scientific experiments on mice? <coughs> or whatever. You know. um, there are lots of questions that science by its very nature doesn't even properly understood claim to deal with. And by definition, those are metaphysical, beyond the physical questions, which is what, science, which is what philosophy deals with. Um, so... <coughs> Once you give those kind of understandings to what, what is science and what is philosophy, it's not that they're kind of squabbling over the same territory. They're trying to work these things hand in hand and get an overall consistent picture of reality. But, but even, even sort of working in the results of what science can tell you about reality into your overall picture of reality, that's a philosophical task by, by its very nature. So I would simply say, well, I don't think there is another subject. Someone might say, well, theology... You know, talking about God explaining it, that's really theology, not philosophy. But I think that's a bit of a, you know, woolly distinction without a distinction. Let's call it natural philosophy, if you like, or theology, if you like. Or, but it's appealing to something metaphysical. Yeah. Any more questions? 
May I then let her have Yeah, yeah. Um, your condemnation of Hawking's approach, um, I think, is unjustified in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think you also fall into the same trap which you're accusing Hawking of. Mm. In, on a number of occasions, you have ignored, if you like, the mathematics of the problem, the statistical questions, the probabilistical options, by saying this is a, prefer uh, sorry, a preferable option. Mm. You've ignored the fact that there is a possible outcome. Mm. The statistics say it is possible. And you have opted for a preferred version. Hawking, in stating about the nature mm. of science and saying matters are not proven, for example, is simply the behaviour of an honest scientist. Mm. Because any scientist who says they have a proof is a fool. Because science, you go back to the work of Popper and other people, mm. science mm. is about making your observations come up with theories to explain your observations. Mm. And that until further observations come along, you may have the high ground, but you can always be shown to be wrong. So there are aspects of that where I find your argument is, is not fair to Hawking, and perhaps mm. you are in some ways committing the same sins that you are claiming Hawking is making. Mm. I think underlying it, though, is also, apart from ignoring perhaps the statistical chances and your, are there enough monkeys? Well, if you wait long enough and, and the time, there is no reason to suggest that time is not finite. Um, on a scale, actually beyond our own dimensions, and also you're not actually accepting, it appears to me, uh, a multidimensional view of space and time mm. outside of our three-dimensional existence. You've ignored the anthropic principle as to the fine-tuning, which I think is, right. you should really have mentioned that, okay. because they don't know what it means. Mm. And unfortunately, one of the absolute sort of key points of your argument was about causality. Mm. Quantum physics does deny causality in many ways that the opportunity for events to occur with mm. no preceding cause mm. is a part of what quantum physics happens. Creation, annihilation of particles and antiparticles mm. is a reality of its existence. Okay, I think... I've, I've dealt with uh, other yeah, issues. I, I counted at least four, I think, <laughs> which I shall try and um, briefly give a, a sort of synoptic um, answer to. Jog my memory, if you will, if I leave out uh, something. Um, on the philosophy of science issue, um, maybe it's not shown sufficiently by, by the quotes and the lack of context of what, I, what I'm saying, but it really does seem that they endorse a non-realist philosophy of science rather than a realist or crit critical realist so-called philosophy of science. They, they genuinely do think that scientific theories are not either true or false. Um, and it's not even about not saying we haven't proved it or, and certainly not in that sort of mathematical or occasional sort of philosophical sense within science, I, I fully grant that. Um, but they're not simply saying um, it's that there's a sort of balance of evidence between these things and the probability of the evidence can shift and maybe this is the best explanation at the moment and so on. They're genuinely saying that they don't interpret scientific theories as actually telling us anything true about the nature of reality, which is a very radical philosophy of science. Um, on the issue of uh, quantum mechanics and um, the generation of particles out of the, um, the vacuum energy, this is not an instance of getting something out of nothing or uh, something happening with no cause. 
Um, depending on your interpretation of quantum mechanics, it may be something happening with no uh, one-to-one determinative cause. Maybe something happening according to a statistical law. But it's certainly not an instance of something happening with no causal relation, something physical happening with no causal standing or relationship between it and a prior physical prior cause or state of affairs. You've got to have in place the quantum vacuum and the, all the laws of quantum mechanics that describe it and so on in order to get the particles popping into existence and popping out of existence. So it's not a counter-instance to the metaphysical claim that from literal nothingness, you can't get something. So it doesn't, I think, bypass the metaphysical claim behind the arguments that I was uh, making. On the statistical um, imbalance behind things... Certainly, with the with the fine tuning argument, I guess that would be what it, your criticism applies to the most. Certainly, you can grant it's possible that if there were sufficient random events happening, it could produce a certain result. Or indeed, you can say, okay, maybe maybe there is only one universe that just happened by chance, and we're very 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 lucky. That's possible as an explanation. But there's a big difference between saying that an an explanation for something is a possibility and saying that it's the most plausible explanation for something. And my argument as a a sort of inferential uh, argument there is simply that the most plausible explanation of something that seems to be fine-tuned, an instance of specified complexity is design. That is the most intuitively plausible explanation in line with the rest of our experience. But it's not saying, therefore, it's impossible that chance explain the universe. It's simply saying, okay, that's possible, but which do you think is the most plausible explanation, the explanation more likely to be true than the, than the other? Um, so it's not attempting to be a sort of deductive knockout blow to the chance theory. It's simply attempting to say that's less plausible than the design explanation. Um, I think those are the summaries of the answers that I give to... The only one you didn't the, touch on, if you want to, but yeah. I'm not going to... Was the anthropic principle... In oh, the, yeah, the anthropic principle. Yeah, that's great that I... That I yeah, because this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, isn't it? Um, Okay, so here's the anthropic principle. Anthropos from the Greek meaning people, and it basically says, look, you're saying I observe this state of affairs that, that needs some sort of explanation, and I'm going to appeal to God to explain it. Okay? But you've also pointed out that if the universe was slightly different than it is, you wouldn't exist. So you couldn't exist to be surprised in a universe that wasn't like this, so the fact that you observe a universe like this isn't surprising. It's not surprising, is it, that we observe a reality around us that is consistent with our existence. 
may not exist how we are now, but surely they could exist, still exist, just not. We might exist with different characteristics. They might, I mean, if the universe was diff- like, uh, created differently, mm-hmm. we could still exist, we'd just be suited to that universe as opposed to this universe. Yeah, that's a, that's a slightly different issue. And, and just to, to a side stepping into a slightly different issue there which is saying it's not just that the fine-tuning of the universe permits our kind of life, but that the huge majority, the huge, huge majority of universes wouldn't permit any life. You know, that we're talking about things like not even having matter, <laughs> let alone chemistry, let alone carbon chemistry, let alone life. Let alone, you know. uh, so it's not just our particular kind. It's the, the fine-tuning is, is a bigger issue than that. Um, but back to this anthropic thing, of course it's true to say it is not in, a, in one sense surprising that we should observe a universe that is compatible with our existence, because if there were no universe compatible with our existence, then obviously we couldn't be here. Um, but a number of philosophers tell some very interesting uh, sort of philosophical parables or thought experiments that I think deal very neatly with this. Uh, one's John Leslie. Um, who tells the story of a man brought before a firing squad. And, uh, you know, this team of crack sharpshooters all stand a couple of metres in front of him, and he's tied to the wall, offered the blindfold and the last smoke and all that. And uh, the sergeant answers, you know, take aim, fire! And all these bullets whiz towards our poor unfortunate victim and hit the wall, you know, all around him, under his armpits, between his legs both sides of his knees, etc. The smoke dies down and the noise goes away and he's still there. And he says, uh, uh, what's, is someone playing a joke on me? What, what's, what's happening? Wh- whose idea of a joke is this? Am I on candid camera? You know, what's, this is a set-up job. And the commandant says to him, I don't know what you're surprised about. I mean, after all, if any of the bullets had hit you, you wouldn't be here to be surprised at the fact that you're in a circumstance that's consistent with your existence. So what are you surprised about? And Richard Dawkins, in uh, his book, The God Delusion, talking about this illustration from John Leslie, agrees with John Leslie that the, uh, the purported sacrificial victim who's just survived this firing squad um, is right to think... <laughs> is right to think that there, there's some sort of put-up job here, that something does call for an explanation. Um, the fact that we exist in a universe consistent with our existence does not explain the observation that there is a universe consistent with our existence that's a very finely tuned, unlikely universe. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming along. Thank you, Luke, for organising Peter to come here. Thank you very much indeed for coming, for listening, and do have a chat if you want to on the way out. Thank you very much.